Welcome to Primarily 2020, the podcast all about the politics, policies, and personalities of the 2020 Democratic primary. I'm your host, Karen Robinson. I would like to welcome back to the podcast, Emma Brunel, long-term friend of the pod and uh, Hamilton partner in crime. (laughs) (laughs) Don't get us started, Karen. (laughs) Uh, For my listeners, Emma and I uh, went on another podcast last night and wound up singing most of the first song of of Hamilton, the musical. Um, So anybody who wants to come at us for any copyright queries, we can only apologize. I think given how bad my singing was, we're copyright okay. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's it's fair enough that we would deviate into just pop culture riffing because it's been a pretty slow news week, really, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely nothing I mean, going on. nothing going on in the UK, nothing going on in the US. It's yeah. just like... Nobody's politics is falling apart. <laughs> no, no, it, it's all fine. Everything's fine. I feel like it'd be a good place. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to go with where the, where the everything is fine dog. <laughs> And she sips her coffee. Um, yeah, so uh, looks like we're impeaching the president. That escalated quickly. Yes. Now, please explain to me, because here's something I don't quite understand linguistically. I understand the process. Mm-hmm. Um, is impeachment the process you go through to get to the point where you say, impeach, I'm going to impeach you, so he is being impeached, or... At the end of the process, when the Senate votes on it, he will either be impeached or not. No, two separate processes. The House process is the impeachment process. Right. So the House, it's it's kind of like a grand jury, right? So the House brings the uh, brings the charges to the floor. They make a vote on whether or not the Senate should convene things. But if the House votes to impeach, then the president is impeached. Right. It's like with Bill Clinton. So Bill Clinton was impeached, but not removed from office. Mm -hmm. In fact, no one, no president in U.S. history has ever been removed from office through the impeachment process. Um, Andrew Johnson, who I think was the first one um, to be impeached, was impeached and then fell just short of the two thirds majority to be removed Mm -hmm. from office. So if and what looks more and more likely when um, Donald Trump is impeached by the House, he is he has been impeached. Then there's a second process, which would be run in the Senate to determine whether he is removed from office. Okay, so so that so impeachment is not in itself the the final decision. It's it's sort of like an indictment, like it's a censure or sort of a stronger censure. It's, it's stronger than censure, yeah. but yes, it is. It is. Um, it is more in that vein. Um, and you know, so it's 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 interesting that the removal has never taken place. And Nixon, of course. Self-removed. He's self-removed. <laughs> well, because it was clear, and and at the very last minute, very shortly before he resigned, um, it then suddenly, almost like last week, how everything just kind of happened all at once, yeah. it very suddenly became clear that Republicans um, and Democrats were nearly unanimous in the Senate that he had to be removed from office, and that's when he resigned. So, And I don't want to get too far ahead of the game. It is wildly unlikely that Republicans will find their patriotism and spine, although I hold out hope. I'm, I, I, No one is irredeemable. I, I'll give them a chance. But should that happen, should it swing round, I would not be at all surprised if it, if the same process recurred. In other words, you know, it makes sense to get out while the getting is good. If, if you're a president who it's clear is going to lose a vote in the Senate, it's more dignified to resign than to be kicked out. Dignified. 
That's not a word I generally associate with that. Uh, yeah. With Trump. Fair point. When I say it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's just take him out in leg irons. <laughs> I mean, the thing um, that worries me, let's say that you know the Democrats take the House, take the Senate, sorry, keep the House, take the Senate, get the White House. But there will still be an enormous pressure to, um, even if Donald Trump is found guilty of crimes, high crimes and misdemeanors, many small crimes. He's probably nicked bubblegum from a shop. Um, I don't think he's ever been in a shop. <laughs> well, he would go into a shop just to nick bubblegum. <laughs> That's the only reason. We're laughing because it's not funny. <laughs> But there would have, I mean, again, we're getting massively ahead of Way ahead, yeah. But there would be an enormous pressure in that kind of same way there was on Gerald Ford, bring the country back together mm-hmm. to um, uh, to forgive. I can't remember what the word is because I'm very tired and very stupid. But, uh, you know, to, to, <laughs> pardon. to pardon um, Trump and or most of his associates. I think that's... Sorry, we're, we keep saying we're getting way ahead of things. We are. Yeah. Um, I'll wrap that. Let's let's answer that question quickly, and then let's come back to yeah. the basics. So, uh, yeah, there would if if that first of all that would be a good problem to have. Please, yeah, exactly. please let us have the problem of Democrats own all three, uh, yeah. all you know, all major branches of government, and now we're trying to decide whether to pardon the criminal law behavior of of the president. Um, I, I honestly, I think. Gerald Ford, pardon Nixon, I don't think it was good for the country that he did that. Um, when Obama came in, he let a lot of things go in terms of um, the torture that had been perpetrated by the American um, for the intelligence services and, and military personnel because he was keen to move on. I'm not sure ultimately that was good for the country. Sooner or later, I think there is a sense of lack of accountability yeah, in American public life. Sooner or later, actions have to have consequences. I mean, I'm not, it's not something I relish. And that's something I should say about impeachment too. Let's come back to the basic principle here. Um, This is not a good moment for the country. No, I think whatever your politics, you would rather there weren't the need for impeachment. The, The question is, you know, now there is so much evidence. That need is, it feels very clear but it doesn't feel clear to about 40% of the country. And that's going to be very difficult. And it's whether, I mean, and to be fair, back in Nixon's day, it didn't feel very clear to about 40% of the country for a really long time. Yeah. It was only after the night of the long knives and the tapes came out that the country went, oh, hang on a minute. Okay, <laughs> I get it now. Whether there'll be a hang on a minute, I get it now moment with Trump, I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if, if we're in that kind of, space well let's let's go back to basics so um what happened this week um and and it all happened pretty much since my last podcast so (laughs) a week is a long time in presidential crime doing um since last week what came out was that the whistleblower campaign complaint which we kind of knew was in the background and we knew that adam schiff was concerned that a whistleblower campaign had been held back from Congress, which in itself is a violation of the law. So we'll say law-breaking one. Um, It then came out through reporting that that whistleblower complaint seemed to have something to do with Ukraine, possibly that it was to do with um, the withholding of military of appropriated military aid that Congress had designated for Ukraine, 
specifically, by the way, to defend them against Russia. So there's a huge Russia angle in all of this, which we have to keep in the back of our minds at all times, considering Trump's relationship with Putin. Um, Then Trump kind of just went, yeah, that's what I did. (laughs) Um, You know, so Rudy Giuliani kind of first went on TV and saying, well, yeah, yeah, I pressured I pressured the Ukrainians to investigate Joe Biden. Um, and basically what it, what transpires is that the president had been urging the newly elected president of Ukraine to investigate, yes, the, the, the activity of former Vice President Joe Biden's son, Hunter, in Ukraine. Um, he was the, on the board of a, um, of a natural gas company out of Ukraine, which uh, against which there are some allegations of, of impropriety. We'll come on in a second to talk about the Bidens and their relationship to this whole story. Um, we now have the transcript, and it, it's interesting because it's clear that it wasn't just even that that he was pressing for. He was also pressing them to investigate a range of other weird conspiracy theories. This has been an undercover aspect of it. Conspiracy theories that seem to have very little to no justification, um, suggesting that one of the things he asked them to look into was the the suggestion that Hillary Clinton's email servers are somewhere in Ukraine. Yeah, it's, it, <laughs> I'm just looking at me like I'm crazy. Yeah, that's, it's, it's in the transcript. Oh my God. He's talking about something called CrowdStrike, which is a right-wing conspiracy theory that alleges that Russia had nothing to do with hacking the DNC in 2016. So Trump is still obsessing over the 2016 election. Anyway. To be fair, so are we. <laughs> we well, yeah. <laughs> but I'm trying to get over it. <laughs> Forward looking. Forward looking. Uh, so he he asked the president of Ukraine to investigate both of those things, both Joe Biden, uh, Hunter Biden's activities, and and this conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. The president of Ukraine in the transcripts, and by the way, I feel really bad for this guy. It, like because his transcripts, he's fawning and sycophantic towards Trump, which. I strongly suspect he was briefed to be because that's what work. And if you're if you're the president of a small Eastern European country threatened by Russia, you just want your money, please. I think the poor bastard is just going, oh, just give me the money. Yeah. <laughs> like whatever I have to say, I'll say it. Just give me the money, which, you know, presidential blackmail, not good for anyone. It's not a great look. No. So, um, yeah, so he did it. He kind of acknowledges that he did it. He put out the transcript, and now we have a whistleblower report um, which claims not only that there was that one phone call, but that there was a second phone call before the phone call we've got the transcript for in which a similar dynamic was at play. Also, the allegation is that Trump... Also with the same guy. Also with the same guy. So the the, the first very first phone call when he was... His first congratulatory mm-hmm. phone call upon being elected... And then the other allegation is that um, Trump ordered the transcript of that call, the one that we've now read, to be moved to a code word clearance classified server when it's not code word clearance classified information. And isn't there also an intimation that that's not the only time that that's happened? Well, that is what is going to be really interesting. And I will be really curious to see how Democrats handle this because one has to hypothesize that there is presumably other transcripts in that same server. And I would be willing to bet some of them might be uh, Putin-Trump conversations. 
And as you may recall, we've Trump has been very secretive about his one-on-one conversations with Putin. He's not allowed any staff into those meetings. Translators is, aren't allowed in. Translators yeah. aren't well. Translator U.S. translators are not yeah, allowed. Yeah. U.S. media are not allowed in. But even the U.S. Foreign Service staff, which would normally sit in on a call and brief the president, have been kept out of the loop. So if there exists in this confidential um, server any documentation of that meeting or any meetings with Putin. Democrats would be really keen to see that, but I'm not sure that we can subpoena those records. It's really unclear to me what process we could follow to have sight of that to determine whether the classification was done correctly. And presumably that's really complicated because that database exists because there has to be some place where you can have that absolute top secret. So you can't do a fishing expedition in it. No. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it, You definitely can't just say, show me everything in the classified yeah, yeah, yeah. files, obviously. Now, having said that, because Congress has oversight authority, code word clearance is granted to some members of the House Intelligence Committee, for example, or the Foreign Affairs Committee. Um, and so they it might be possible to arrange for specific records to be viewed by individual or groups of members of Congress or, or senators, um, but you'd have to know what you were looking for. Yeah, you can't just say, show me what's you, in there. Yeah, how do you know which specific documents to ask for? Yeah. yeah. So uh, so anyway, so law-breaking <laughs> one, <laughs> the, 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 it, was, it was withheld, law-breaking potentially, potentially criminal action two, um, using, the, using the power of the presidency in this way. Um, we now have this information. Uh, what do we think? I mean... So Nancy, also, um, weren't they directing the DOJ to cover it up? Oh yeah. So there's the whole William Barr yeah. um, role in this. So and there, yeah, there's a whole bunch of other things going on with oh, just <laughs> it's just such a mess. Yeah. So Rudy Giuliani is there as the presidential envoy. Now he's saying Giuliani is saying that he was there at the direction of the State Department, which, if it were true, would interestingly legally protect Giuliani to some degree because he's otherwise not allowed to conduct foreign policy independent of the United States. But it potentially makes the scandal bigger for the president because if he's having his campaign coordinate with the State Department, that would be a legal campaign activity. So there's so much going on. <laughs> And, I mean, it, it it astonishes me that we've had three years of all this is going on while the president's being investigated. Yeah. So you know, you'd think while you're being investigated, you might rein it in a bit. Well, I think I think it's the opposite, Emma, because if you look at the timing of that second call, it happened the day after Robert Mueller testified to Congress. Trump thought he was unleashed. Right. That seems to be the dynamic here. And actually, he talks about it in the transcript of the call with uh, the Ukrainian president. He says, yeah, I totally got away with it. Yeah, yesterday, yesterday, this man called Robert Mueller testified. It was a very bad performance. Like, it's some sort of acting challenge. Oh, he sees everything as TV. He does. Yeah. Everything is TV. Yeah. American Apprentice, basically. Yeah. 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 Um, so, okay. So, it's all bad. Um, what do you think about the politics of it? So Nancy Pelosi's official position um, is that this is not a political question. This is to do with protecting the national security of the United States, which I think is both true and the correct political position. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is no better political position than this isn't a political position, um, certainly at the moment. Um, yeah, I think Pelosi, 
almost took too long, but in the end, when she made it turn around very quickly after this sort of final bit of, you know, as this rolled out really, really quickly, I think actually her very quick turnaround into an impeachment position was basically her looking like Donald Trump's forced her to do it, which actually, again, is quite good politics. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, guys, it's so uh, my side of the moment. I didn't even want months, to impeach, but they're making me. <laughs> and now I tried so hard not to make this a, a, a thing. But, you know, I cannot no longer ignore the flagrant ab- abuse of the, by the president. It's pretty strong messaging. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how well it will work in our, in our hyper-partisan times, I don't know. Yeah. I suspect that ain't the line that Fox News has taken. It, it isn't, but, I mean, on the other hand, Fox News is talking about it. Mm. And one of the big problems that we've had, one of the reasons potentially why I, I think a lot of Trump scandals haven't broken through is Fox News has felt free to just simply ignore them, mm-hmm. just not cover them at all. And so, um, you know, impeachment is a story they're going to have to cover. They'll have to find an angle on it. It will be interesting to see how this plays out, certainly in the right-wing media. Um, but it's interesting. The politics of it are interesting too, because the complaint about Nancy Pelosi was always that she was being too cautious and giving too much credence to the moderate members of her caucus. It was in the end, the moderate members of her caucus who flipped and they were the ones who urged her in the direction she went. Yeah. 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 The so-called national security Democrats. Yeah. 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 (laughs) <laughs> it isn't a national security. <laughs> like the thing I really don't care about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess in fairness, so the, the the way they the people who are described as national security Democrats are all Democrats from moderate districts who specifically have military or foreign policy experience. So we're talking about people who are um, have been on the front lines in some way of our foreign policy. Um, so that was interesting. And again, you know, they take the same line that Pelosi did, which is that you know this is a constitutional imperative. Yeah. But it's worth pausing to recognize how how otherwise unfettered the power of the presidency is, and it should scare us. And given that the Constitution was written in order to stop the supreme power of kings, I mean, I could, oceans rise <laughs> and pass fall. <laughs> is this becoming our signature? I, I, this might be our thing now. Uh, although I suspect you'll get many complaints. <laughs> um, if I, I apologize, yeah. if anyone was offended. <laughs> yeah, the 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 Constitution, as it was written, was it done so in order to stop there being absolute power of a monarch. Yeah. You know, whether that's a monarch, monarch, you know, from some bloodline or the president, that was never supposed to happen. That's what having the different branches of government was all about. And, you know, it just seems that certainly over the last at least probably 20, 30, maybe even up to 50 years, the Republicans particularly, although it could be argued Democrats too, I mean, certainly Obama used executive orders a lot to get things done, um, as Congress has ground to an absolute standstill, the government, that constitution has stopped working in that way. Um, And it's for us, you first had standstill for about 20 years when, which suited small state Republicans, people, uh, Republicans who didn't feel the government should do anything, so were quite happy with the fact that it couldn't do anything. But now you've got, since the Tea Party, instead of small state government, you've got quite radical right-wing government who want the government to do certain things and do a lot of them, but are 
you're still stymied in Congress. So now they're just like, well, just just break the rules. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's not good. And it's one of the reasons why I think a kind of underappreciated undercurrent of the Democratic primary so far has been a debate within the party about whether structural, whether and how structural reform is needed. Yeah. Um, And I think Pete Buttigieg has been making it a little bit of a kind of signature of his campaign. He's talking about, you know, kind of rebuilding the political system, not even necessarily for his presidency, but for future presidencies and for the generations to come. You know, he's been talking about, you know, not all of which I support, but he's been talking about some pretty bold ideas around revamping the Supreme Court, around certainly ending the filibuster, et cetera, et cetera. Because the bottom line is, you're right, the presidency has become powerful because the other major branch of government, the legislative branch of government, has become inoperative. Um, and so both from an oversight point of view and the non-political and from a branch has become political. Yep. <laughs> so it's just broken. Yeah. Ah. So the executive branch is literally insane. The, the non-political branch of the judiciary has become totally politicized and the legislative branch has come to a, ground state, come to a standstill. That, but apart from that, but apart from that's working brilliantly. It's fine, yeah. So okay, so impeachment—it looks like it's happening. Um, I'm curious to know, Emma, what your take is on Joe Biden and his family's role in this whole issue. I mean, I haven't seen any evidence that there was wrongdoing. That uh, I mean, I don't know enough about what Hunter Biden were doing in. Uh, in the Ukraine. Um, so it may well be that there's something there, but I've seen nothing to, to suggest it. Um, so I think it feels an awful lot like Trump throwing as much as he can at his still most likely opponent, although I think that that dynamic is changing, which we'll talk about later. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, but I think also Biden is... Biden's quite an emotional guy, so goading him, particularly through his kids, is like quite clearly a good strategy for Trump to get him to snap back. Yeah, although I'm not sure it's working. Well, it's obviously not working for him. Yeah, <laughs> but, I don't know, and I haven't noticed Biden actually taking no, it up. No, that's what I was going to say. He's because, he's been responding pretty yeah. in a pretty chill way. He's you know he's not. Which is exactly overreacting because what Trump is always looking for is a reaction. And when you saw that whole Pocahontas thing with Elizabeth Warren, that was like a rare misstep for her (laughs) in terms of the political messaging. And it it set her back for months. For a long time. Yeah. Uh, You know, which she seems to have learned the lesson. But yeah, it, it, so I think Biden is responding exactly as he should be. I imagine he's absolutely raging inside. So I think a lot of people out there, and um, I'm going to give a shout out to my dad. Hi, dad. Hi, um, Karen's dad. <laughs> I talked to my dad um, on the phone recently, and I think he probably speaks for a lot of American voters where he was saying to me, yeah, obviously what Trump did was really, really bad, but something doesn't smell right. Like something feels wrong about what the Bidens, what was going on with the Bidens. And I think that's a perfectly understandable reaction. Um, so as I understand it, the facts that we know so far are Hunter Biden accepted a position, um, a pretty lucrative position. I think he was making about $50,000 a month, which is nice work if you can get it. Can I do that job? Well, quite. Especially since it doesn't seem to have been much of a job, right? Um, 
it's pretty clear they didn't hire him for any specialist expertise or knowledge. Let's be honest. They hired him because he was the son of the serving vice president of the United States. And they wanted, if not actual influence, at least the appearance of influence. Um, So that's not good. Okay. So... No, and I joke about it, but my mum and dad aren't, you know, anybody particularly important other than to me and my family. Um, But I would just be, like, horrified at the idea that that's how I made my money. Mm. Like, American individualism, what happened to that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not great. Um, I don't love it. Having said that, I think, so there's Hunter Biden bit you. Um, I'd strongly recommend to all my listeners a very thoughtful New Yorker profile of Hunter Biden that was published a few months ago. I want to say earlier in the summer, um, which basically just it's a, it's a no holds barred kind of this is what's going on with Hunter Biden. And, you know, he cooperated with it. It seems to me like the Biden campaign probably wanted to get ahead of of his story because um, it's not good. I mean, he is a seriously like, honestly, I have a lot of empathy for how much he's clearly struggled. He's had some mental health problems. He, um, you know, went into deep, deep grief over his, the loss of his brother. They were very, very close. There was a strange kind of interlude when he was dating his brother's um, widow for a little while, <laughs> um, moved into the you house. You really filming this podcast just like, to catch my face reaction. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I could, I'm, I'm glad to say this out loud to you now because like I read that, that interview, that, that, that profile and hadn't had a chance to mention it to anyone before. So now I'm like, that was messed up. Yeah. <laughs> like Hunter, not okay. Something, something not right with that boy. Um, and you know, you, and I think I get the feeling Hunter, like his dad is also a very hard on his sleeve kind of guy and not necessarily making the best judgments, um, in a number of areas of his life. And he's acknowledged, um, taking drugs. He's acknowledged a lot of ton of personal problems. Like basically he just has some stuff to work out, right? Boy just needs to get his shit together. Oh, he sounds like my kind of man. <laughs> <laughs> I even wish I was kidding. That sounds like everyone I've ever gone out with. <laughs> Emma's type. Men who need to get their shit together. Yeah, Men who need to get your shit to together. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right. So she's single, gents. <laughs> So yeah, um, so that that's not great. Then, but then on the other hand, you have to say, okay, what's Joe Biden's role in all of this? Yeah. Now, the critical question here is whether Joe Biden was in any way acting on behalf of or for the benefit of his son when he intervened to ask to encourage Ukraine to remove their federal prosecutor, the Ukrainian prosecutor whose name I'm not going to try to pronounce, something like Slotkin. Um, was was criticized very, very strongly at the time, not just by Joe Biden, it's not a personal thing, by the American administration, so the Obama administration, also the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and the European Union were all accusing this person of being too weak on corruption in the state. Now, Ukraine is and was a deeply corrupt state. So I have um, a little insight into this because I recently came back from a festival of Ukrainian theatre held in Poland. Of course you did. <laughs> As you do. Like you do. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, it was it was really interesting because it's the, the Ukrainian theatre sort of community are quite liberal. Yeah. As you can imagine. Um and that yeah, there was some really sort of interesting stuff about how corruption is so endemic. 
Um, and, you know, they've changed governments. And, they, yeah, and there is a real struggle in Ukraine and Poland, to be fair, as to which direction to look in, whether you look to Russia or whether you look to the EU. Um, I saw a wonderful piece of immersive theatre earlier this year um, a, that was put you into the heart of um, the, the Maidan, mm. which was the Ukrainian attempt at revolution um, when they tried to join the EU and, and the president sort of yeah. changed their mind. Um, and... Yeah, it, it, it is a state that is known to have a lot of corruption issues. And I, as I say, I don't, was Hunter Biden under investigation for anything? So the situation is, so the situation is that the company that Biden, that Hunter Biden worked for um, was being looked at, the um, oligarch who owns it, was being looked at for potential allegations of corruption. But that prosecutor, the one that but that Joe Biden asked to be fired, had not, the allegation was from many sides that he was not doing enough to look into that company. Um, so there, so he, he had, he brought literally no charges of public corruption in the entire time he was a prosecutor. And specifically he was accused of using his position to curry favor, potentially even blackmail or extort money from people in positions of power, such as this oligarch. Nothing's been proven for sure, but there is no evidence that he was doing any significant work in managing the um, prosecutions as he ought to, which is why he was eventually removed by a vote of the Ukrainian Congress. So it wasn't ultimately that he was fired, he was removed legislatively effectively. Um, And Biden, by pushing for that, most people say he was actually pushing for a more aggressive prosecutor who would have looked at that company more assertively. Okay, so if I were on the other side, yep, what would I believe? If you were on the other side, you would think that it is so what your claim would be that he was trying to get the prosecutor fired because you would believe that he was that that prosecutor was investing this investigating this company. But there's no evidence that he was. Um the other point that's kind of important to get across, as I was saying, is that Biden was not speaking on his own behalf. He was speaking on behalf of the administration. And that's presumably provable. Yeah, that's verifiable. I mean, it was the Obama administration policy, the IMF policy, and the European Union policy that this prosecutor should be removed. Um, And then the final question is, did Biden even know what his son's work was in Ukraine? Now, and this is where it gets a little confusing because Biden says he never spoke to his son about what work he was doing for this company. Um, Hunter Biden says he had one conversation with his dad about it. This is covered in that New Yorker profile that I was talking about. And he, he claims that the conversation they had was just Joe saying to him, I sure hope you know what you're doing in Ukraine, which sounds to me like a kind of gentle fatherly way of trying to say Dude, dude, <laughs> don't get in trouble here. Maybe, and maybe leave your sister in law alone. <laughs> yeah, back off, boy. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. So I came away from reading that profile thinking this family needs some space away from the public eye to sort themselves out. But yeah, I think that some of this feeds into the wider Biden narrative, mm-hmm. uh, the anti-Biden narrative, which is he's been in the public eye for a really, really long time. 
he as a as a result have become both an institution yeah. and institutionalized in terms of you know being at the heart of everything not really being a change maker um seen as very much kind of a wall street guy um and all of this feeds that narrative and that is what trump is presumably pushing yeah. You know, very unlikely that he's going to get actual evidence against Biden from this thing by the sounds of it. Mm. But he can absolutely drum up that narrative that this is the corrupt establishment of old. Biden is the swamp. He's just like Hillary. You don't trust him. You know, he's just out for himself. He's just enriching himself at the at the expense of you, the little guy. But that's where I think it's interesting, because that is definitely Trump's playbook. And it worked very well for him with Hillary Clinton. Um, and there are, you're right, there are some strains of the narrative about Biden that have some that have some resonance with this story. But the part that I don't think resonates is the personal corruption angle. Because Biden has not, I mean, he's famously, until recently, he was the, you know, in, when he was in the Senate, he was statistically the least wealthy member of the Senate, I think, for a long time. Um, he has not had a history of enriching himself. He has not had a history of excessive cronyism or anything like that. I mean, the cronyism he's accused of is more being friendly with Republicans on the other side of the aisle. That's the, that's the, that's the accusation from the democratic side of things in the primary. So I'm not sure how much that particular set of um, set of messaging really resonates with the kind of public persona of Joe. No, Biden. I mean, it may, it may or may not. And it's probably less about Joe Biden. That is about. The, it did resonate with Hillary Clinton. It completely resonates with Hillary Clinton and Trump wants to redo that playbook. Yeah. But I don't know, that's the thing. Like, he's not really nuancing it for the different rival. He just thinks no. he plays the same play Think again. about what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird how Donald Trump hasn't cleverly nuanced his political strategy. Uh, oh yeah, I, mean, I think, yeah, I mean, that, that seems to me he just wants to throw dirt and mess it all up. And equally, you know, the more he can go, we're all corrupt, but I'm better at it and yeah. I'm your guy. Yeah. Then that kind of takes the edge off him. So... Then it raises the question, to move on to our next topic, what if Trump's not even up against Joe Biden? Um, which is, as you alluded to earlier, looking increasingly likely. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the big stories of the last kind of few weeks and months of the race has been the steady um, and consistent rise of um, the person who is now Biden's main opponent, um, Elizabeth Warren. She has now surpassed Bernie Sanders in the polls um, for a solid number two position. And in recent polling in a lot of the early states, especially um, the most high quality polling coming out of Iowa, she's looking in a very strong position to potentially win that state and and early states, which, as we know, um, is likely to turn everything upside down, (laughs) world turned upside down. (laughs) Um, I nearly went there. Yeah, I know. I was like, no, don't. We've already sung one. Stop it. Um, What do you think about that? I mean, that definitely seems to be the narrative. Um, You've had three debates now. I'm sorry I couldn't join you for the last one. Um, You were in Poland doing a Ukrainian theatre festival. I was. (laughs) Um, But I think uh, Elizabeth Warren, after that initial stumble with the Pocahontas uh, stuff and the blood test, DNA test, whatever, um she has she basically just kept her head down, pumped out policy, and built up this steady cult of personality on the quiet. Like rather than going, hey, I'm a great big personality, look at me. She just stood in a selfie line for hours. Yeah. 
Uh, and everyone who met her was like, oh, she's got a great personality. And then one often told people about it. And then the selfie lines got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until that one in New York that I think took four, four hours. hours. That's, I mean, Bless her. Even with New Yorkers. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, because that's, I mean, that's the thing. She had a, a huge rally in New York, something like 20,000 people, yeah. which is Obama 08 size rallies, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is interesting because she's, She's not superficially an Obama 08 style candidate. Yeah, yeah, she doesn't yeah. have that cult of personality going for her necessarily, that star power, except she does. Except she does. And she's done it in a different way, which I think she couldn't have done it in the same way because she's not that person, but she's she's kept true to herself. Um, and, you know, she was saying at that rally, hey, I got a plan for that. You know, <laughs> she, she's got this great little catchphrase, which isn't quite, yes, we can. But still, <laughs> it is basically, yes, we can. We have a plan. Yeah. We have a plan is, yes, we can. Yeah. God, I've got attended to Dr. Zeus. <laughs> yes, we have a plan to. <laughs> um, but she's I she's done really well at building momentum fairly naturally. My question is, does that momentum kick up in Iowa if she wins Iowa? Does it then go, oh, she's got the electability thing. She's proven she can win. She's getting these big crowds. She could be, and then that complete, or is the momentum at the moment so early that she then, she wins Iowa, but then she doesn't win something that comes in the South Carolina or something. Georgia, maybe. One of the, one of the states where um, the African-American vote, which she's not doing as well with, is stronger. Yeah. Um, and then it kind of goes, oh, well, she had the momentum, but now it's crashed again. So that I think is is where she needs to be conscious that the, she will have an issue. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting point, and it's one of the reasons I think that a lot of pundits and strategists are saying that her her potential lead looks stronger than some other candidates who have had bounces and bumps. So Buttigieg had a, a little bump when he first kind of came out in the media. Kamala Harris had a bump after her debate, but they were bumps where yeah. she Elizabeth Warren is not having a surge she's on a trend line yeah. which has been pretty steady for the past few months which makes it and then you have to look at how she's doing it and it feels like how she's doing it as you say is through grassroots organization through on the ground meet and greets through um kind of good volunteer recruitment um through good kind of activism um and and that's a different thing. It feels like a more durable approach to the primary. But everything could change tomorrow. Who knows? Everything could change. I mean, it will depend on what the other candidates do. Um, Bernie is not a guy to drop out, I think, particularly quickly. Um, but his momentum is going the other direction. So if he, he could drop out and throw his support behind Warren, who is the most obvious ideological candidate... But his supporters don't necessarily go for Warren. Quite a lot of his supporters are either Bernie or Biden. Mm. Um, there is a, a, when you listen to, say, for example, there was a good episode of the New York Times Daily mm -hmm. uh, about that New York rally. Yeah. And I think the, the what Elizabeth Warren has done is radicalise soccer moms. <laughs> Whereas what Bernie's done is find the, the radical vote that was already there and enthuse it. And infuse it, and I don't know whether that radical vote and the soccer mum, the rather recently radicalised soccer mum vote, how well they gel. Yeah. So if they, if if 
Bernie Sanders decides that the best way to get the things that Bernie Sanders wants from the country is to throw his weight behind Elizabeth Warren. I think that makes her unstoppable because she's already got quite a few of the, I'm quite centrist, but I want a woman. I really like the energy that I'm seeing there. Joe Biden's making too many missteps and uh, there, there really aren't any other candidates in the top tier at the moment. Yeah. Um, she can make that unstoppable by adding the the left vote. Um, and keep if she can keep that up, then the question becomes, can she win the general election with that coalition? Yeah. I think your point about the radicalized soccer moms is a really interesting one in the context of this race, because one of the big stories in politics over the last three years has been the radicalization of women. Yeah specifically. And I mean, radicalization. I mean, we are pissed. (laughs) (laughs) And older women as well. I mean, not just, not, not just Elizabeth Warren older, but I mean, over, over 30, over 35. Women like me. Not just young women, but yeah, yeah. but, but, but you're right. Like soccer moms or I love that you use the American expression soccer moms rather than football I'm, I'm mom. I'm to your audience. <laughs> well, well done. I, I know they think football is a completely... Don't even get me started. Don't even get me started. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, so the question is, is Elizabeth Warren radicalizing them? I suspect probably it's more that she's demonstrating herself as the the best choice mm. for these yes. already radicalized oh, women. Oh, yeah. I mean, these, these are women who... Uh, five years ago didn't really think much about politics but four years ago we we're on the women's march yeah yeah or three years three ago, years ago just feels so long <laughs> yeah four years ago sounds like a happy time yeah. <laughs> i remember that that was nice um yeah so there are these women who are radicalized but there are also as you say um in order to win the democratic primary any candidate will need to secure a very substantial amount of support from African-American voters. And more than that, in order to win the presidency, any Democratic candidate will have to not only win the majority of African-American voters, which they will, but also excite and enthuse African-American voters so that they participate at a high level and including overcoming a lot of barriers that have been put in their place. Do we think Elizabeth Warren can do that? Can she do it? Yes. I mean, I think she's got the potential to do it. the African-American vote, from my understanding and my listening to lots of other excellent podcasts and reading far too much about all of this, is that they tend to be a more conservative, um, with a small C, um, vote and are basically their biggest concern is electability. Mm-hmm. So what she needs to prove is that she's got the electability. Um and I think she could work really well with decent surrogates, particularly um, in the South. Um, if I were her, I would be wooing Stacey Abrahams as hard as possible. Um, oh, everybody everywhere should woo Stacey yeah, Abrahams absolutely. all the time just because, you know, she yeah, deserves whatever you can throw at her. <laughs> um, no, I know that because she's doing her particular project, she's probably not um, picking a side. Yeah. Um, but I do think that in terms of that enthusiast, enthusing the vote if she becomes the candidate, yeah. that's when yeah. women like Stacey Abrahams, Oprah, I mean, Oprah, Obs, <laughs> <Obbs. laughs> um, become important because yeah. I think they need to be, and you, know, you need to have um, people who have done this work. I'm, I'm trying to remember the name of the guy who 
um, Andrew Gillum, mm. another excellent person that, sh- that should be out there being really visible. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, mean and, and, and her good mate, Cory Booker, who may yeah. drop out of the race. Yeah. Well, actually, that, that brings us on to the next item on my list. Um, so, Cory Booker this week um, went out with a big announcement saying that they do not have enough money. They, they didn't say they didn't have enough money to stay in the race because they said, look, they were very clear, we can stay and keep going at this level with the money that we have, but we do not have enough to escalate our campaign and grow it to the degree that we would like to and that we feel we need to to win the race. So unless we hit this raised fundraising target, um, it is very likely that Cory Booker will drop out. He basically dropped an ultimatum on his supporters and went, you know what? I'm in or I'm out, right? You're with me or I'm out, Um, which was interesting. Um, I think it clearly was designed as a fundraising tactic and also a little bit as a way of refocusing people's attention back on him. And from that point of view, I think it was pretty effective and I thought it was pretty smart. What did you think? I I think it's a knife-edged decision Mm. because it kind of says, I'm currently a loser. (laughs) Um, But people might have noticed that anyway. (laughs) I don't think anybody but, accidentally was under the impression Cory Booker was leading the race. Well, no. I mean, to be fair, you know, low information voters don't even know like who's, who he is. <laughs> that there is a Cory yeah. Booker in this world. Um, but I do, it, it, it's not always, because quite often winning gets gets winning, you know? Yeah. Um, and by saying, I currently don't have any momentum, get your money behind me. It, it is a Hail Mary pass. Now, I don't know what that is, but I love the phrase. <laughs> Hail Mary pass, a football term referring to throwing <laughs> the ball. <laughs> An American football term. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> I hate American football, so I'm not going to try and... Uh... I mean, my understanding is when you boot the ball down the end of the field. Yeah, it's when you just... It's, it yeah, it's when you just throw the ball as far as you can and see if anybody catches it, maybe you'll win a point. Yeah. Why not give it a go? Which is kind of what Booker's doing. Yeah, I mean, it is a hell And that's fine, is, right? Like, absolutely. I mean, it's a term I know far more in politics than I know in any sport. But, um, yeah. But I think, I think he's doing it... So in the context of the conversation we were just having about African-American voters, there may be a smart tactic at work here, which is if you're Cory Booker's campaign, look at it this way. Until recently... Kamala Harris was the leading African-American in the race. She's fallen off. Her poll numbers are way down. She's now much closer to Booker territory. This is a good moment to decide that people who would like to make sure that an African-American voice is remains prominent in this race, not necessarily even wins it, but remains prominent in this race, this is a good moment to make those people stop and think again about Booker. So it could be a way of changing the debate, changing the narrative and making him suddenly salient in voters' minds again. Um, so I'll be curious to see how it how it plays out for him. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly worth watching. Um, but, I mean, as, as we came into this, I still think he should have a voice. Uh, yeah. And if he... Because him and uh, Elizabeth Warren are really good mates, as I understand it. Yeah, he has a lot of friends in Congress. In, in, in his, his best friend in Congress is Kirsten Gillibrand, but, but she's gone. She's, she's out. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I just... So I think that he... He will have a role, but it will probably be kingmaker, not king. Yeah, yeah. kingmaker is a pretty powerful role. So we'll see what happens with that. Um, So then um, we talked about it's possible that uh, Booker might drop out, but somebody actually did drop out of the race. 
Bye-bye, Bill de Blasio. Very, very tall man. (laughs) Very, very tall New York man who needs to go back and do his day job. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, the the, the narrative was always there's too much wrong in New York for you to be doing this right now. Um, And, yeah, I love New York. And I like some of the communitarian stuff that he's been doing. And I like some of his sort of left of centre narrative stuff. But he just... um, yeah, he never got off the ground and it was never his time and he was never the one who was going to deliver that message the most strongly. Yeah. And, and when you've got, like, the man with the most New York accent in the world and the most left-wing politics, it just doesn't... You know, Bill de Blasio was just too much of a watered-down version. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I just... I never knew why he decided to enter the race in the first place. He just seemed like a complete... Because he's a white guy? <laughs> it just seemed like a complete waste of everyone's time. Like... You know, it's not like we desperately needed a progressive voice. It's not like he didn't have an important job to do as mayor of New York, go back and do that. It's not like his approval rating was high. His approval rating in New York, even when he entered the race, was quite low. It's not like there was any um, public polling that suggested that he'd be a compelling candidate. There was no reason for this man to be in this race. And so he came, he went. I'm wondering what he was trying to raise his profile to do, because I don't think he ever thought he was going to win, but quite often people go into these things because they want to be AG or something. Yeah. So I'm wondering what it was he wants to do, what it is he wants to do when he stops being mayor of New York. That's a really good point. It may be that, in fact, it was his low approval rating in New York that made him want to raise his national profile. So, yeah, but I don't, I don't, I don't feel like he put in the kind of performance in this primary campaign that makes a prospective future president think, yeah, I'm going to earmark him for my cabinet. Yeah, it's I mean, fine. And, well, I mean, you don't want to make him transport secretary. <laughs> <laughs> Harsh um, dig on New York Transit there. I go to New York all the time. Yeah, it, it ain't good. It, it, it's, I mean, the, the complaints you get about the New York subway dwarf what we do about the tube. Yeah. We really hate the tube. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, I, I mean, and also, what, HUD? I mean, you know, that is also not in a yeah. great state in New York. So I just, yeah, I, I don't know. And he, you, you're right, he didn't come out with some sort of big, big pitch. Like, what was his, like, so, say Andrew Yang, like, Andrew Yang is clearly there to make sure that we all care about and understand universal basic credit. He knows he's not going to win the presidency, but he really has raised the profile of that issue. Yeah. Um, your lovely twinkly guy from Washington State. <laughs> lovely twinkly. Jay, Jay Inslee. Um, Hilarious. Why is he twinkly? Never he mind. Twinkly. He does have a shine in the eye. Yeah, yeah he was sweet. Um, but... Uh, he climate raised change. the president of climate, climate yeah. change, uh, and that was really, really important. Uh, I don't, I don't see that with Bill de Blasio. I didn't. There wasn't a thing that he was there to do. Yeah, and it certainly wasn't with the presidency. Right. So, so if any de Blasio fans would like to ring in and let me know why they're terribly sad that he's left the race, please do. But otherwise, I'm going to assume that we were all universal in saying bye, bye, Bill. Other stuff happened this week. Um, So as we've covered previously in the podcast, there are only a very select number of formal democratic debates, but there are an infinite number of democratic forums Um, for the benefit of kind of those who don't obsessively think about this from the purpose, for the point of view of the DNC, the difference between a forum and a debate is that a debate is the candidates side by side um, interacting with each other. And a forum is the candidates back to back. 
The result is that we have a tedious sur surplus of candidate forums. For example, the climate forum that we had a few weeks ago in which people um, spent 10 hours, one candidate after the other, doing an hour on the climate. It's just the most boring way you could possibly ever talk about a compelling issue. Um, but we had an LGBT forum, which doesn't feel to me like I've set that up particularly well. But this <laughs> week there was an LGBT forum. Um, so the candidates came and spoke specifically on issues related to LGBT. LGBTQ. And I thought it was actually kind of interesting in its its way. First of all, it was nice to see the candidates happily engaging with LGBTQ issues. Obviously, um, important that for the first time we have an openly gay candidate um, who already sort of like came out again um, in the in the debate. So he made a point of talking about his coming out story in the debate. This forum allowed him to, to delve a little bit more into LGBTQ issues and policies, which was really interesting. Elizabeth Warren had a big moment um, at the forum where she read the names of Black trans women who have been um, violently murdered in the past year. There were 18 of them and really raised awareness of that issue, which I thought was compelling. And then Joe Biden was kind of awkward, I'm going to be honest. Isn't this the theme? Like... <laughs> bit cringe but well done for showing up I guess I don't know what did you think Emma I mean I haven't seen much of this I have to admit um it was a late party conference this week so <laughs> I have been exhausted and drunk <laughs> <laughs> despairing <laughs> um but yeah I mean it's it just I don't understand what Biden's people are doing not drilling him better on this stuff because it's so every part that's hard in his image and is playing badly with activists. So it's the same as his answer on reparations. You know, it's like, dude, don't sound like a 76-year-old, even though you are one. Mm. You know, you really got it. You've got to understand. And, you know, you don't have to. There's no reason to sound so out of touch. So what is going on that they cannot get him over that hurdle? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, it's... I hate to say, it, but it's probably not the fault of his advisors. I mean, it's the same with Trump, right? And and I'm in no other way conflating these two men. But your advisors can tell you as often as they as often as they can until the sun sets, do this, do this, do this. But if you either don't want to or can't, it ain't gonna work. And yeah, it's again, it's like I really don't believe that Joe Biden is a racist. I really don't believe that Joe Biden is a homophobe. Just awkward old but white guy. Just yeah, he he just doesn't know how to talk the modern language of these issues. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's a tricky one because the thing is even with LGBTQ I don't have any doubt that in his heart of hearts, Biden sincerely wishes the best for people from that community. And even, and this is the case for many people, even to the extent that he might not fully understand the issues of the of that community, it comes from a place of kindness and it comes from a place of goodwill. Which is the opposite of Trump. Absolutely. So you know what? I don't undervalue that. I, like that's important to me that somebody cares and their intentions are good, even if they made mistakes. So I don't, you know, I'm not going to pile all over Joe for being kind of awkward, but he is kind of awkward and mm -hmm. I just feel like we can do better yeah and I I, I I wish he could do better I would like to see yeah. him at the next debate maybe just take a moment and go you know what I get a lot of this stuff wrong because he kind of maybe gets stuff wrong yeah or has got stuff wrong in the past and he's been on a on, on a journey as they say in the <laughs> but you know actually that would be most compelling because yeah. so is America 
I mean, actually, one of Joe Biden's better moments, I thought, in his in his career was when, as vice president, he accidentally changed Obama administration policy on on gay marriage. <laughs> it was hilarious and so Joe, right? He, yeah. he just kind of spoke out of turn and basically said that he supported same sex marriage before Obama was ready to announce that they were changing administration policy um, in that direction. And it was just kind of like because Joe couldn't stop talking. And that, <laughs> And that was, you know, that was a classic example of like good hearted, bumbling Joe Biden gets to a good place, kind of fumbles the ball a little bit, but you let it go. And I think, you know, so I think it's not that he doesn't, it's not that he doesn't have the right cut, not that he isn't coming from a good place on all of these issues. I think he absolutely is. But, you know, fumble it the other way, Joe. (laughs) Fumble it. If you're, if you're going to be kind of fumbling Grandpa Joe, try, try and fall to the right side of of that of that line oh dear me oh dear so the other thing that happened this week um super quickly is the iowa steak fry formerly the harkin steak fry but tom harkin's name is no longer on it since he's basically no longer involved with it so now it's run by a bunch of grassroots organizers and um it's a hilarious iowa tradition do you know anything about the steak fry emma uh i believe that they fried something like a thousand steaks something like that just after talking about climate change which is you know (laughs) Well, uh, Cory Booker Booker was flipping vegan burgers, so, you know, there are choices. Um, But, yeah, uh, there seems to be an awful lot of food-related things that you have (laughs) to get through to be a Democratic candidate. So you have to fry the steak. You have to have something on a stick at the Iowa State Fair, I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, Never, ever, ever eat food with a knife and fork. Yep. don't and get Dijon. <laughs> I mean, eat your eat your cheese steaks with cheese whiz, not not with uh, Swiss. Like there are all these rules. Yep, for sure. So yeah, for, I mean, food is culturally very important um, wherever you are. Food is indeed culturally important, and it's politically important, Emma. So you can you can laugh all you want about American politicians eating food in public, but both Miliband brothers here in the UK got in a lot of trouble for eating food badly on camera. So the practice is maybe not such a bad thing. Or just no food. Just no I mean, food. Yeah, my advice: <laughs> don't to eat anyone, bananas don't in public. Eat bananas in public. Never eat a bacon sandwich in public. Because um, look where we ended up: bacon sandwich to Brexit. Clear path. <laughs> Um, Blame it on the bacon. But yeah, I just think, I mean, I know that what they're doing is the basic equivalent of a village fate. Yeah. That's what you That's do. That's it. Yeah, it's a party. It, yeah, so I get it. It's grassrootsy. It's you know, folksy. It's cute. It probably doesn't matter all that much. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It did produce, however, some great video, which I can show you after the podcast, Emma. There are like there are three different videos. So there's a video of Kamala Harris and her drum line. So she enters and has a little dance. <laughs> Amy Klobuchar had a little dance as well. Um, and uh, Julian Castro, I have mixed feelings about this, brought his own mariachi band and had a good little salsa dance. So... Fair play to them for cutting loose. And dancing in public is even braver than, than eating in public. Absolutely. Uh, and Theresa May could tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> kind of worked for her, though, didn't it? Nothing worked for her. <laughs> fair, fair. <laughs> was doomed. Right, okay. Well, that, that covers off the main news I wanted to cover. Um, shall we go on and play the gut check game? Every time. Every time. So, 
For those who are new to the podcast, I have in front of me my trusty Red Sox baseball cap, into which I have placed some quotes and sayings that have been heard around the campaign trail over the past week, um, or in American politics more generally. Emma is going to draw one out of the hat, read it out, and then we will just check our guts and see how we feel about it. The moment I knew I was endorsing Elizabeth Warren was last month when I misplaced my HIV meds. It cost $35,000 to replace them out of pocket with amazing platinum level insurance. Healthcare shouldn't be for profit ever. It's a human right. Jonathan Van Ness of Queer Eye. Yes. So he um, endorsed Elizabeth Warren this week and gave that as his reason for doing so. He had recently come out as HIV positive, which was a big kind of cultural moment. Um, and then he had like a big sort of squee off when Elizabeth Warren called him. It was really cute. They, they, they did this little thing and she was like, I can't believe you called me. I'm like, oh, bless. Um, it was really sweet. And again, in a week when the LGBTQ forum was happening, um, probably a good thing for her, a good, a good get, as they say. Good endorsement. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, these cultural figures are really, really important. Um, uh, and Queer Eye is such a sort of well-loved programme. Yeah. Um, and I think also that quote is actually, whether he wrote it or not, or had someone clever in politics writing for it, it's, it's the perfect quote. It goes from, here's my personal healthcare issue, which has an LGBTQ sort of aspect to it. Here's the political problem. I have this great insurance and even I can't get this sorted. Let's endorse Elizabeth Warren's brilliant policy. Yeah, it's... And it just it takes that <laughs> journey so beautifully. Well done on your spectacular political messaging, yeah. John. <laughs> um, maybe they should have the next, que- next Queer Eye. Maybe they should add a, a sixth member of the squad who can be like the messaging crafter yeah. <laughs> or the political advisor. Yeah. Doesn't sound like they need it. <laughs> <laughs> They're sorted. Um, so, yeah, I thought that was that was interesting. I expect we'll see a lot more of those pop culture endorsements as things oh, move on. I, I, yeah, I won't know who to vote for until Katy Perry tells me. <laughs> he said if Al Gore had won the 2000 election, American politics would have gone on such a different trajectory that he would probably be happy, happily living as a literary critic at some university instead of running for president. Pete Buttigieg. Yeah, so that's Pete Buttigieg saying that he would be, if... Uh, you know, in another world, he'd just be a literary critic in a university. It reminded me of a scene from The West Wing where, who was it? Somebody was saying, you know, that Bartlett, if if um, if Leo McGarry hadn't come along, would be the you know most most popular economics professor in the University yeah, yeah. of New Hampshire or something. Um, I kind of thought I, re- I read that and I thought, oh, I have interesting feelings about that because I think there's truth in it. Um, that you know, he he probably would have kind of gone and found a, a more sort of academic or, you know, life of the mind type career. There's a theory in British politics called the Eric, if, if Eric Joyce was teetotal theory. Right. Um, now, Eric Joyce was the MP for Falkirk and he got pissed in the House of Commons. Am I allowed to say that? You could just go on. angry. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> and thumped someone. Oh. Uh, and as a result, um, was uh, suspended from the Labour Party and was not allowed to contest his seat. Right. There was then a lot of controversy about the seat contestation that then happened um, and accusations that were never proven uh, that Unite the Union had stitched it up. 
As a result of those accusations, Ed Miliband changed the rules of selecting the Labour Party leadership, which led to uh, the selection of Jeremy Corbyn as leader, which many say that because Jeremy Corbyn did not campaign vigorously enough against Brexit, led to Britain leaving the European Union, (laughs) which led to Theresa May and then Boris Johnson. Right, so it's the flap of a butterfly's wings. So I think the the I don't buy the it's all our choice being drugs. <laughs> I mean, you can see the journey, but there's a whole lot of cultural shit, yeah. sharp stuff going on elsewhere. But I think it's it is a fascinating point in that if almost anything had happened differently, Donald Trump would not be president. It was such a knife edge political victory. And there are so many alternative universes. Like if you, I don't know if you've seen Avengers Endgame. Uh, no, I, so in, I've in, lost my various universes. Anyway, so in Avengers, the the, the Benedict Cumberbatch character, Doctor Strange, whatever his name is, he he's he says um, that he's seen all of the potential outcomes, and like there are four hundred eighty-seven million potential outcomes, and there's one in which we win. That's kind of Donald Trump, and you just like think. How different would the world be on how many levels? Um, how, what, how many people who are currently really engaged with politics would be like knitting on a Sunday afternoon or starting book clubs? Think of all the, think of all the popular culture that isn't being created by people who are instead going on marches. Like it just feels like what a world. We've, what a different environment. But is it is it really true that Pete Buttigieg would be uh, would be out of politics if it, if if it weren't for Trump? I don't think so. But. Yeah. I don't think so either. And also, I I don't think that an Al Gore government would not necessarily have led to us here because yeah. I think he would have been quite um, radical on the environment and not yeah. radical on the economy. Yeah. And, you know, that would have caused a lot of the cultural issues that we're mm. seeing now. So, yeah. So maybe undercurrents so would have taken us to a similar place, yeah. if not the exact same place. Interesting. Speculative history. Okay, this is from an anonymous democratic strategist. This is the first time I'm allowed an anonymous quote to go in the gut check game. Warren is the clearest example of a candidate who is prosecuting a worldview, one national democratic strategist said, referencing Harris's often repeated line that she is best equipped to prosecute the case against Trump. Biden's prosecuting the case, I'm the guy who can win, the strategist went on, and Kamala is what? Kamala is what? Um, I think Kamala has really fallen back, is yeah. what Kamala is. Um, you're, because there was a moment where she was, the, you know, when she was in the Senate and she was prosecuting a lot of stuff on uh, at various hearings, she was very good and that's what led her to the national profile that led her to running. Yeah. But we haven't seen enough, nearly enough of that. And she that last debate, she was just trying to be too candidating mm. Mm. and it just didn't work at all. Do you know, I think I think it's interesting because I think Kamala Harris is a very talented politician and I like an enormous amount of what she says and does. And I like who she is. I like I, I do think like as a as a background, as a kind of what she stands for, she's great. I think she lacks a, a controlling narrative. Mm-hmm. I think she lacks a purpose and a kind of un, a core mission, which absolutely, as this quote is saying, um, I am not the de- I am not the anonymous democratic strategist, <laughs> but um, but I agree. I tend to agree that um, Kamala. So there was a 
I think it was actually a, a, a daily, um, a New York Times daily podcast that's basically that looked at Kamala Harris, interviewed her and asked the question, kind of what is the core political philosophy of Kamala Harris? And and what came back was she's very pragmatic and mm-hmm. she's very, um, you know, she's uninterested in ideology for ideology's sake. I'm not sure that's a presidential approach. I think that's a no, really good think, approach for her role as attorney general, for example. I think there's nothing wrong with pragmatically working out the best way to implement as much of your ideology as possible. Yeah. But I think you've got to have both. You've got to be pragmatic with a purpose, yeah. which I know sounds horribly like a democratic strategy. Pragmatic with a purpose. That, oh my God, that probably <laughs> Purposeful is pragmatism. <laughs> But, you know, there, there's going to be a reason. Otherwise, you're just plodding. Yeah. Pragmatic plodding. Pragmatic <laughs> plodding. Pragmatism with purpose or plodding. Oh, God. God, okay. I'm sorry. Me saying things in capital letters doesn't make them better. I'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, Kamala, kind of get your act together. Shall I do one? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to pick the one that's the longest one, uh, the biggest piece of paper yeah, in, totally <laughs> in my trusty Red Sox Facebook app. Um, this is a quote by Donald Trump. It is from the, uh, the transcript of his call with the Ukrainian president. I would like you to do us a favor, though, because our country has been through a lot and Ukraine knows Uh, a lot about it. I would like you to find out what happened with the whole situation with Ukraine. They say crowd strike. I guess you have one of your wealthy people, the server. They say Ukraine has it. There are a lot of things that went on, the whole situation. I think you are surrounding yourself with some of the same people. I would like to have the attorney general call you or your people, and I would like you to get to the bottom of it. As you said yesterday, the whole nonsense ended with a very poor performance by a man named Robert Mueller, an incompetent performance. But they say a lot of it started with Ukraine. Whatever you can do, it's very important that you do it, if that's possible. I mean, half of me wants to talk about the substance, which is the disgraceful ask and the breaking of the law. But the messaging side of me is like, what the hell, you <laughs> rambly old bastard. <laughs> Reading transcripts of anything Donald Trump ever says is just the most excruciating thing in my life. <laughs> and and it goes back to when he was running, when he was running in the primary, he did a series of interviews with newspapers, New York Times, Washington Post, and they published the transcripts of all of them, and I read them all. And I just, even back then, I was like, there, there are just words that don't mean things. It, it's word salad. It's, it's you know, it, it, he's just verbal, verbal diarrhea. Mm. And you, 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 he didn't finish a sentence there. No. I mean, there's no... Okay, I've just not finished a sentence. Right there, <laughs> fine. I get it. We all do a little bit of that when we're talking rather than writing. But there is no sort of coherent where he'd said, here is a one thought... Here is the next thought. My third thought is this, and this is what ties them all together, which is what you need to do when you're having this kind of dialogue at this kind of level, rather than just simply rambling at somebody, bringing up concepts that they, like CrowdStrike, that they probably haven't heard of, or if they have, are certainly not going to talk to the President of the United States about on a controlled phone call. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is... There is so much wrong in this one paragraph of text that it's it's hard to even know where to start. I mean, to start with, if you're a prosecutor, 
beginning a statement with, I want you to do me a favor <laughs> is already a pretty strong it's a bit mob, isn't it? Yeah, it's a bit like mm. <laughs> except the mob are usually a little bit less direct. <laughs> I mean the mob are the mob I come to you the day of your son's wedding. It's better than any I would do, yeah. But uh, but it's yeah, the explicit I mean, that's it. It's an explicit quid pro quo. I want you to do this for me. Oh, it's extraordinary. And and the crowd strike that they're talking about here is, as I was saying earlier, is this totally unvalidated conspiracy theory that Russia did not hack the DNC, even though all of our intelligence services say they did. He's at war with his own people. He's at war with his own intelligence service. He, yeah, anyway, I'm not going to complete that sentence. No. Well, he didn't. <laughs> Quite. <laughs> Right. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is a Donald Trump, as reported in the New York Times. Mr. President, she declared, according to a person familiar with the conversation, you have come into my wheelhouse, <laughs> said the spider to the fly. <laughs> you have come into my wheelhouse, said the spider to the fly. What's your gut check reaction to that? Uh, yeah, as I say, I think that until a week ago, everyone was like, Nancy, you're messing up the politics of this. And then she's just gone snap oh snap oh snap <laughs> um and i think she's turned her own image around and also politically positioned this you have come into my wheelhouse yeah. you have pushed it so far that i have to do this now yeah is really the message that she wanted to get to well the specific context of that phrase was she was reminding trump that she had been the ranking member of the senate intelligence committee for many many years before she was speaker of the house so she feels extremely confident on national security matters which i don't think i suspect trump didn't know because he's very poorly informed but i also think um he, she is considerably more knowledgeable, expert, and thoughtful about foreign policy than he is, which but, is but that's terrifying. Toddlers, <laughs> quite. Um, and I think she was basically just, and and she's done this from the beginning. I mean, Nancy Nancy Pelosi takes no shit from Donald Trump. She is not impressed. Do you remember the clap back. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And I think he has no idea what to do with her. So he allegedly called her up this week and in the context of this conversation um, under the pretext of wanting to talk about gun control and then switched to this, suggesting that maybe they could work something out. And she was like, oh, hell no. Her response was, you can tell your people to follow the law. Yeah, absolutely. Which, you know, there is no other response, really. Right? Like, what else are you going to say? Right, should we do one more? One more. One more. All right. Do you want to do it or shall I? You do it. All right. I'll pick one. So. Okay. This is interesting. So this is from Cory Booker. He says, regarding impeachment, I think we are just on the foothills of a mountain of evidence that will come out in the coming days and weeks. And I have faith at the end of the day, knowing a lot of my colleagues like I do, that some of them will have the courage to stand up and do the right thing at the right time. When he was referring to his colleagues, does he mean Democrats or people in the Senate? It was reported as if he was talking about that Republicans might come along. I mean, I think, you know, we've already discussed this, that there may well be a snowballing if it comes to the point where um, Mitch McConnell feels like he might lose the Senate. He would lose Donald Trump over that. Where the, where the issue comes is um, that Republicans who go against Trump might get primary. Yeah. 
and that's what they're really scared of. I don't think they have necessarily a any ideological or personal loyalty to Trump. They have a massive personal loyalty to themselves and keeping themselves in the Senate. Yeah. And if they feel like they'd lose a primary by going against Trump, they won't do it. Yeah. And I think Cory Booker sometimes has a little bit too much faith in people. <laughs> I would like to believe it was justified. I fear it is not. Yeah. But but thanks for your optimism, Corey. I mean, that is his role in life. Bless him. <laughs> he is Mr. Sunshine. Thanks for your thanks for your hope. Um, we appreciate it. Um, I would like to believe that Republicans will turn out to be the patriots they have always claimed to be. I I don't want to entirely give up on them until um, until they prove me wrong last and final time. And I will always give people another chance to redeem themselves. But I'm not. Let's put it this way: I'm not banking on it. I'm not making any plans that are contingent upon the Republicans doing that. Which it's kind of Nancy Pelosi's philosophy. It's right, right? We're, which we have to do what is right. If they come along, they're very welcome. Um, and on that note, um, here endeth a very event-filled week in American politics. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, it's been real quiet over here. Yeah, I mean, it's just so chill in the UK. It's great that I'm thousands of miles away from all where all the action is. Thank you, as always, Emma. It's it's just too much fun having you on. Oh, it's always, always great to be with you. Thank you. And uh, apologies for all the singing. <laughs> next, see, see you next time. And that's it. Thanks for listening. This week, I've got a special extra treat for listeners um, because uh, there is another additional bonus episode that I'm publishing this week. That's right. You get two lovely episodes this week. Um, I had another interview that I had already conducted with um, the brilliant journalist Judd Legum um, looking into Facebook, um, the Trump campaign's Facebook activities and unofficial non-Trump campaign activities in support of President Trump on Facebook. We also had a look at what Democrats were doing on the Facebook platform. Um, So it's a really fascinating conversation. You will remember that Facebook um, has been a major source of controversy and there have been um, many allegations of illegal or inappropriate activities on um, Facebook um, from the, in support of Trump in 2016. I want to be careful how I say this, Um, in support of Trump that originated out of Russia. Uh, The Trump campaign itself has used Facebook in ways that are um, sort of dubious and potentially troublesome. Uh, We look into a lot of that um, in terms of how Facebook is being used right now in 2020 by the by the Trump campaign. So um, please have a listen. I would love to know your thoughts. Um, And it's a it's a busy week in American politics. Um, Good luck to you all. Stay safe. uh, Sleep well. I will see you next week.